I used to idolize these media execs. And then I'd meet them, and I'd have dinner with them, have lunch with them. I'd be like, I can be you. And that was so empowering because I was like, <laughs> I'm, I'm idolizing you, and I think I'm better than you. And I'm 22, and you're 40. I'm going to totally pass where you are. <laughs> I think you're an idiot. In some regards, some of these people, I was like, I think you are an idiot. Welcome back to another episode of Our Future Podcast. I'm your host, Simran Sandhu. I'm joined by my co-founder and co-host, Michael Sakan. And this is the go-to entrepreneurship show for young people. We give you the tactics and strategies other young people have used to win in business, and very few have done it better than our special guest joining us today. We know him as the guy who signs our paychecks, pays for this entire production, but you guys will recognize him as the CEO of Morning Brew, Austin Reef. Appreciate you joining us today, man. Thanks for having me. That was pretty good. That was you like it? Yeah, good, good intro. Good, man. We're yeah, trying to bring the energy. Thanks for coming on, Austin. We really appreciate it. And uh, I just think a lot of people forget how young you were when you sold Morning Brew. How how uh, how old were you? Like 25? Yeah, I think I just turned 25. That's, I don't think you give off like super young, bratty, showy. Like, you you're know, not I think that with you've it. always yeah, been a little more flashy. mature. Yeah, it's funny. The, the age thing is interesting because when I – everyone asked me about it, and, and now I'm no longer like the, the young – I mean, you guys are, what, 25 now? I just turned 25. Yeah, and so it's, <clears throat> it's interesting because when I – when we started Morning Brew, people would always ask me, how does it impact you? And I had nothing to compare it to. I was like, I don't know. It just – it, it kind of is what it is. Uh, I think definitely yeah. people viewed me as, as young, but I think I'm maybe a little bit more mature. I, I look a little bit older. I kept the, the beard very <laughs> – intentionally but what's you know post covid i'm now late 20s and we do these these i think you guys may have joined these meet and greets with me and all the new employees and i remember there was one a couple of years ago where i said something to the effect of how young i am and someone like raised their hand on the zoom <laughs> and they were like how young are you and i was like oh i'm like 27 and she was <laughs> like i'm 22 and I was like, oh, my God, I'm no longer that young. Like, people, you know, I, I just it's crazy how like now I'm now the older person at Morning Brew. And there are so many people who are 22, 23, 24. So it's great to have some some younger folk around here. Dude, totally. What was the dynamic like? This is something, you know, me and Mike talk about all the time, which is at some point, you know, when you're building a company, you're going to have people around you who are way more experienced, way more tenure. So what is that like when you're the young guy coming in and, you know, maybe there's a little bit of ego in play, but you have to, you know, show your authority as the CEO. You're the one calling the shots. What's that like working with older employees? Yeah, so I think first, I think it's been a huge benefit that Alex and I were young, had no media experience. I mean, this industry is, is not very good, right? Yeah. It's, a, it's a tough industry. Uh, it's evolved very quickly. And there are people who have been in this industry for 10, 20, 30 years. And I think those people have a lot of uh, preconceived notions or ways of doing things. It is very much, a, well, this is how I did things at my last job, and that's how I'm going to do it here. Yeah. And there are very few people who can take the amazing things they've learned, but adapt them to a new environment, new platforms, morning brew. And so uh, I think that was a, that was helpful for us, the fact that we were young. I will say it is still something I struggle with now when I manage people who are 10, 15, 20 years older. I do think a lot of people think, oh, I've been doing this much longer than you. That's a huge advantage. And totally. I think there are some people who struggle to see how an outsider's perspective can be really, really helpful. I don't care how you did it at your last place. I care how you know, we can use that to make Morning Brew the best place it can possibly be. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me ask you this. I think, you know, people have a good understanding of the founding story of Morning Brew. I mean, lots of podcasts talking about how you guys were the first people in the newsletter space, built a big company. So let's get a little bit tactical, right? So it's 2024. Let's say you just graduated from Michigan. You can't start a newsletter. You can't do an agency. You can't go the TikTok vibe. I guess Michael and Simmy got it. that covered for now. Yeah. What are you I doing? I don't know how to do anything else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What are you doing? How are you getting your first win? Well, so if you ask Michael, I guess he's living on the streets because uh, <laughs> he's all TikTok. Uh, what would I do? So I guess it depends what you define as an agency. But I do think if your goal is make $100,000, make half a million dollars, I think there is a huge opportunity in just providing services for the professional service industry. 
doctors, lawyers, accountants, uh, plumbers, you know, in fairly wealthy but smaller towns, not New York, not Chicago, not D.C. Uh, you know, my, my mom's a dentist, so I've seen firsthand how yeah. the, the people servicing these these companies, the, the social media agencies, for example, or even the software they use, it's not good. It's built in the, you know, it's built 25, 30 years ago. And the social media tactics that these dentists and accountants and these, these, these agencies, they charge an, a, a fortune. And it's because people who are later in their career feel as if they are being outcompeted by people who just graduated college and are coming into the industry. So new lawyers, new accountants. I mean, look at real estate. Like, who's the biggest real estate agent? Or one of, it's Ryan Serhan. Why? Hmm. Maybe he's a great real estate agent, but he's amazing at building content and building media. And so I think going, talking to accountants, talking to lawyers, talking to plumbers, and just asking them, what's your problem, right? Is it the software you use? And go build software. Now with AI, you can build software very, very easily. Or, oh, do you need help building out your audience on social media? Let me help you do that. There's so much money in helping people later in their career uh, do their job better and compete with this next generation of people coming into these professional services. So that's what I'd start with. And over time, you'd, you'd figure it out. Yeah, I feel like I'm just starting to see the value in servicing those businesses. Like right now I'm dealing with at my mom's house, like a propane leak. So we have to deal with like this furnace guy and the plumbing guy. And then a, a few months back, we had termites. And this guy comes to my house, you know, he just like looks like a very average Joe. And I get to talking to him and he's like, you know, I'm like, where do you live? He's like, oh, here and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, wait a minute. Like you have the biggest house in our entire neighborhood. And then he shows me his car collection. And I just keep like going deeper. And he's like, yeah, I make 1.3 million free and clear. I just have an assistant. She's the only person on payroll. I swear to God at that moment, I was like, (laughs) maybe I could just apprentice in termites, you know, like I can see myself doing that. I can get under, like, I don't care about getting dirty. Like Simi knows that I can fix, fix a few things, but, but yeah, there's a ton of money in it. And a lot of these people, they don't want to continue running their businesses. They don't have the ability to exit. So there's a huge arbitrage just waiting to happen there for young people. We'll see if like our generation can roll up their sleeves and be gritty enough to do some of those jobs. But I think it's a big test, a big question mark. Yeah, I think it's a great point. And so I was even just talking about helping those people do their jobs better. But I think you bring up a great point, maybe not your first job, but there's a lot of people out there Trying to, I mean, Cody Sanchez talks a lot about it. If you know uh, the Enduring Ventures guys, I think a, a lot Sieva. of yes, yeah, Sieva. A lot of their thesis is around buying some of these businesses that are being passed down from uh, boomers to our generation. And you, you know the stats, I'm sure the the succession rate of these businesses or the success rate when they're passed down. I think it's something like, and someone I'm sure will tell me I'm wrong, but 60% of businesses fail when they're passed from one generation to the next. And then I think it's like a 20% success rate when it's passed down another wow. generation. So there's a huge opportunity. And, and Michael, to your point, like who's buying a, a termite <clears throat> I had fix? I don't even know what you call that, like a termite business <laughs> in wherever you, you live. And so you can buy these things for one, two, three times EBITDA, roll them up. The challenge, though, is finding the people who are willing to work really hard yeah. to go clean yeah. up termites. That sounds horrible. I mean, there's a ton of exit opportunities to private equity in these kind of plays, right? Like, they're focusing on blue-collar businesses, roll-ups. Um, my brother is doing some interesting stuff in the mobile home park space. And so, you know, it's something I keep my eye towards. But it does make me wonder, like, generally, I think what we're getting at is the riches are in the niches, right? You can't go build a broad business anymore. And so maybe this ties back to the newsletter aspect where you guys built a broad media brand across business. But now, if you look at a lot of the people trying to build newsletters, they're going to B2B verticals. They're going in specific niches. And that's where it sounds like the opportunity is. Totally. I think that is absolutely where the opportunity is. I mean, that's if you think about the promise of the internet, like what the internet is so great at, you had, let's talk about media. So you had newspapers, right? Yeah. And, 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 you know, 50, 70 years ago, there were like three newspapers, right? Not very many publications that were at least sent across the, the, the country. And so a newspaper has a lot of fixed costs. And so they need to sell a certain number of publications. And so they had to appeal to the masses. Well, the Internet's the opposite. Think about how many subreddits there are. Think about how many online communities there are. And so why would I join a you know, a, a general business subreddit when I could join the subreddit for people of my 
my demographic or, or the things I care about. And so I think over time, just general in general doesn't work as well on the internet. You really need a, to, to hone it, whether it's D to C, right? Why would I want Casper mattress when I can have yeah. a mattress for someone who loves lifting weights and loves productivity? It's every, you know, every product, every service, they're all going to be catered towards people. That makes businesses smaller, right? Because it's yeah. more niche. But I, I think the, the, the riches are in the niches for sure. Yeah. Well, Austin, maybe, maybe Mike, Austin. you'll subscribe to a few of these now that you're in the big uh, health kick grind, biohack grind over in uh, the Bay. <laughs> Yeah, man, 35 pounds shredded and counting. <laughs> but Austin, I want to ask you about geography because there was a newsletter recently sold in Canada that was apparently called like the, the Morning Brew of Canada that was sold for, I think, a few million, if not more. Um, I see accounts all the time pop up where they're doing our future, like the business stories, but for France or for the Spanish-speaking world. Or now, most recently, I saw one for uh, the Middle East. Uh, they're, they're actually crushing it. So... What do you think about, uh, you know, there's people who listen to this podcast from around the world. What do you think about people taking businesses that kind of work in America, particularly on the media side and applying them to to the specific country they live in? Yeah, I, I think it absolutely can work. The question is, uh, can it work now? So, you know, Morning Brew, you couldn't start Morning Brew today for a variety of reasons which we can get into. So if you're going to try to start Morning Brew in France or a Spanish Morning Brew, the question is, how are the economics of of the business, right? What's the ad market in these countries? What's the cost to acquire customers on Facebook, right? All those things have changed dramatically since Morning Brew started. And so we would right. never, today, we'd never get to, to 5 million subscribers. It's just too expensive to do that. So could work, depends on the market, right? It's, it's all execution, so possible, but uh, not, not easy, especially not easy to scale something like Morning Brew did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Are you bullish on the media industry as a whole? So going back to your your... Uh, niches or niches, depending on how you, yeah. how you like to say it. Uh, I think there are going to be a ton of awesome, cash-flowing, profitable media companies. I think there are so many people building awesome com uh, companies, whether it's a podcast. Uh, you go from Joe Rogan, who makes a quarter of a billion dollars a year, to yeah. you know, people making 150, 200 grand a year, and they like it way more than working at a regular job. Uh, I'm not bullish on media companies having 100, 200, 300 million dollar outcomes. And I'm definitely not bullish on companies raising venture capital to do that. I think it really limits the exit opportunities. And I mean, it's the definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. Totally. We just saw it with the messenger. I mean, it's how many media companies are going to raise tens of millions of dollars pre-launch and then go out of business six months later. You just see it over and over again. So yeah, and there's a lot of opportunities, yeah. but uh, we'll see how big they can get. Um, we even saw it with, uh, what was it? The Instagram guy was trying to do like another news app. It's like, we just don't need that. You know, like we need novel solutions and innovative ideas to push society forward. We don't need more news aggregators. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> we have that with the brew. Like we're already <laughs> aggregating the news everywhere we go. You know what I mean? Totally. So I, yeah, I agree. And it would just drive me absolutely nuts. I think this was like three or four years ago or maybe early COVID, so I guess three years ago, how many times would people tweet, you know what we need? We need a, a podcast recommendation app. You, we, there's not enough discovery in podcasting. And I'd be like, not enough discovery. <laughs> I was like, the list of podcast episodes that I have to, I, there's not enough hours in the day. I have like 75 yeah. hours of, I don't need more podcasts. Like, what, what do you mean? Yeah. Recommend, like, like, go build something of, of a lot more value. We just don't need, I don't need more people telling me more podcasts. When people say there need to be more podcast recommendation apps, what they mean is the podcast I started, I need more people to listen to it. Yeah. It's, it's a yeah. distribution thing, but you, we don't need more yeah, podcast just, recommendations. There's a theory among people who've studied these failed podcast recommendation services and platforms. And it's that we as humans can only keep a certain number of voices in our head, which means that we might have a maximum of like five to seven shelf spaces in our mind for a long form creator. And I think that also holds true on YouTube. And it also holds true in the podcasting world is that when you're in the car and when you're on the train and when you're in the gym and right before bed, you really only are pulling from a few select creators who have made it into your orbit. And that's just natural evolution. That just feels like the right way for it to work. And I think there is no way to make podcasts, you know, like hyper discoverable. And 
You know, I think what me and Simi have learned in like growing, you know, our future podcast and working on this is it just takes a lot of time. And you can have a really flashy social presence like we do, you know, on the way to, to, to 30K, you know, on our Instagram for the podcast itself. But in terms of like the long form affinity, it just takes a really long time. I think that's, um, a, that's a great point. I think that is why so much of media is just doing it for a long time. If you think about the number of people who have blown up quickly, not on a feed-based, forget Instagram, forget TikTok, but on, on long form, even YouTube, right, and have sustained it, there aren't many people who blow up. Alex Cooper blew up, right? But Joe Rogan, I think I, his numbers aren't public, but it probably took him 500 episodes, 1,000 episodes for anyone to really know who he is. And I think, uh, Michael, I've never heard it expressed that way, but I think that's a great point, which is if you want to have 100,000 listeners, you might have to have a million people listen to your podcast and have a 10% success rate totally. of those people getting into that, you know, right. putting you in that five to seven uh, person it's, bucket. I love that. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what about your own content diet? I'm always fascinated by, you know, people who are a few steps ahead of me, Michael, and what they're paying attention to. What are they listening? What are they reading to? Where do you learn? How do you how do you think about that? Yeah, so it's a good question. I think it depends where I am in my life. So when I first started Morning Brew, yeah, I would get to work at 7 a.m. every day. And I would read 30 newsletters. I'd, I'd read every Axios newsletter. I'd read, obviously, every Morning Brew newsletter. At the time, it was just one. Uh, obviously, as we, as we grew more, yeah. I'd read every, uh, every newsletter out there. I would read all of them just to understand what were they doing, how were they evolving. Over time, what I've tried to do, and this is part interest and I think part my evolution, I've tried to get away as much as possible from daily news, right? You still, I obviously still read Morning Brew, side, and the CEO yeah. of the company, but also I think daily business news is important. But I've basically cut politics completely out of my consumption diet. I get enough of that Agreed. on Twitter. <laughs> enough of that on Twitter. But you, you get it through all in, right? Do you get the all in politi- political takes or do you just skip through that? No, no, I, I get the I, I get the all in thing. I mean, that's not news. They'll talk about like the the, the, the biggest hitting items. But my, my my thesis on 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 politics is, if it impacts my life, it will get to me. To your point, Michael, like all in, we'll talk about it, or like someone will come up to me and say, "Hey, did you see this thing?" Uh, nothing's happening on a day to day basis that won't get to me in a couple of days. So yeah. I've cut a lot of that out, and then I focus more on industry stuff. So reading Digiday and, and Jacob Donnelly has AMO, reading these because I think they're they're interesting. And then just long form stuff. So whatever comes across, Ben Thompson, I think is really good. Uh, and I've tried to really read more books. My, my personal goal is to get 40 books in this year. I'm pacing a little behind. But the first book I read was the Elon book. And that was a, a beast of a book. It was a very, very good book. Uh, but just trying to read more uh, uh, long form and also f- uh, fiction as well. I get a lot of nonfiction in my life working yeah, in the, the business go. world. So yeah, I'm currently reading yeah. The Alchemist. I don't know if you've read it, but it's it's really good. I can't put it down. It's been highly recommended. I know me and Michael are very different in this case. Michael reads a lot of books that stray away from business. Interesting. But, but for me, I only read business. I don't read anything else. What, what do you, Michael? What, what are you reading? What do you got? I mean, I read a lot of like American literature, right? So like, you know, the classics, I'll often even reread them like Gatsby, The Pearl, like Steinbeck books, like Of Mice and Men. Um, They're moving. Even like stuff like fun (laughs) stuff like 1984 or like, I don't know. I think that the, the less I've consumed of business content, and I'm not really counting news here. um, My diet is like, you know, uh, morning brew and all in podcast and like maybe MFM here and there. But Austin, honestly, I haven't been tweeting a lot lately. Um, I've noticed putting out so much Instagram content. It's actually made me much more creative. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy about it. I just think that it's really hard when you're just scrolling Twitter, and you're seeing what everyone else is doing and what they're saying. And it's really hard to be original. Um, And I'm just trying to incubate and cook, you know what I mean? I'm trying to I'm trying to get in flow and just reach for different things and pull them together. Because I don't know. That's how I started our future. It just kind of grabbed me like in a divine way and told me like, this is what I should be doing. So I don't know. That's where I'm at right now. Yeah. The way I think about it is there's basically two states and maybe there are people who can, who can, uh, navigate through both of them at the same time. I can't, you're either in the execution and operational state, right? Which is, you know, I'm busy meetings, consuming content, like really deep and I'm less creative. And in those times, 
I'm tweeting less. I'm having fewer original ideas, so I'm tweeting less because of that. I'm creating less. And then there are other times where I'm trying to be my creative state, and very intentionally, I cancel my meetings, uh, I am tweeting way more, I'm writing way more, even if it's just for me, mostly it is. And I, it's so interesting to navigate between the two, but what I've yeah. learned is you can't really, it's really hard, at least for me, to be in both. It's really hard to you know, get, be in meetings all day and then at four o'clock be like, huh, let me think of an original idea to tweet. It doesn't work like that. And, and it takes, I'm sure you've heard the Bill Gates Think Week, right? It, 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 and I think the, the beauty of that is it doesn't, you can't just turn it on. It takes yeah. time. And so the reason I think it's a Think Week is it might take 48 hours to really get all of the day-to-day -day nonsense, all of that junk out of your brain to really start flowing in a, in a creative state. And so I think mm -hmm. that makes a lot of sense in terms of you, you, you just, you, you cannot... Uh, uh, be tweeting and posting a lot and also uh, uh, be operational. It's, it's one or the other. You can't do it at the same time. Um, Austin, can we pivot the conversation to young entrepreneurship? So I know Alex was the one who came up with the idea for Morning Brew and he was like doing it. It was called like Market Corner, whatever. My question to you is there's a lot of young founders out there who see another student or someone their age who has a lot of promise. They have a really good idea and they want to get involved. Um, how, how, how do you step in and become the co-founder, right? Like, obviously it's kind of an awkward conversation. You can't just walk up to a guy and be like, yo, I love what you're doing. Make me your co-founder. Like, how can a young person who sees the promise in another young person kind of join them in their journey and like really be treated as a partner? I've heard stories of guys who like, unfortunately, like, will like, you know, it just won't work out because they won't get that same level of respect from the guy who started it. Right. Um, so I would just love to learn how you navigated that process and how you proved your value to Alex. Yeah. So the beauty of our relationship was it started really organically. We weren't friends before. Uh, we didn't know each other. I didn't know who Alex Lieberman was, but what happened is he sent an email saying, Hey, uh, and I was a reader of market corner and he said, Hey, look, I'm looking to it wasn't supposed to be a business. Uh, it was, you know, I, I want to make this thing bigger. Who wants to help? And I responded. And there was no, because it wasn't a business, there was no question around like, am I a co-founder? Are we partners? We just started working and just getting to work. And very quickly, we realized we complemented each other. We realized that we could do good work together. And it grew. And it was just very natural. And I think too often people try to... Uh, make it very inorganic to become a co-founder. And so if you're on a college campus, you know someone who you really respect, you think has complementary skill sets, who you'd want to be a co-founder, don't walk up to them and say, hey, let's start a company together. Uh, just say, hey, let's work on a project. Let's test something out and see how you work together. I think you know this, the, the, the number one uh, death of, of early stage startups is not lack of success. It's co-founder relationships. Totally. Yeah. And it's so That's just crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's so hard. It's, 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 I mean, in some ways it's, it's much more challenging than a, like a romantic relationship. Uh, in other ways, it's, it's obviously not, <laughs> but it, it, yeah. there's definitely different dynamics there. And so, yeah, just start tinkering on something. Who cares if it's a business, a side hustle, anything, just understand how each other, each other works. And if it doesn't work out, that's amazing because you are coding, <clears throat> some silly apps. So if it doesn't work, who cares? So that, that's why I would just make it very organic. Yeah, 100%. It's arguably one of the most important decisions you can make, though, to your point, like if most of these companies break up because of the co founder relationship, they're just not but you know, they're butting heads or whatever, you have to be extremely intentional. And so I want to know more about like the evolution of how you guys have even worked together. Like what were your guys' initial roles like and what was that dynamic like and how did that evolve over time with the growth of the business? Yeah, so if you're listening, I, uh, Sam Parr, who's obviously a good friend of, of all of ours, uh, put out a really interesting activity that him and his co-founder of Hampton did where they were very intentional. They, uh, I'll, you'll have to put in the show notes, but yeah. they uh, – wrote down what are your goals in five years? How do you want to run the company? What's an amazing day in the life for you? And I think that's an amazing exercise. Alex and I, the flip side to it being organic was we didn't do any of that. We never drew a line in the sand and said, okay, now this is a business. Let's go do that. Let's do that activity. So it was very honestly, a, a little bit all over the place. Uh, day one, we were doing the same things. Then at some point, we're like, okay, we can't do the same thing every day. We have to divide and conquer. What are you good at? What am I good at? I said, I'm good at 
data. I'm good at being analytical. Let me learn growth marketing. And Alex's like, oh, I'm creative. Let me do sales. Let me do content. And we just, it was like a bob and weave based off of what we needed. And then sales got to be too much. Uh, we need a bigger sales team. And so Alex's like, great, I'm going to hire uh, a head of sales and I'll help them and go on sales calls. And so we really just played to our strengths. But if I could go back and change anything, it is doing that exercise, being really intentional about what do you want out of life? What do you want out of Morning Brew? What do I want out of life? And documenting that, writing that down. It's very similar to if you've heard of decision journaling, where you say, hey, look, I'm making a decision now. I want to write down how I feel about it, why I think it today, because if the decision is wrong or right in 90 days, I'm going to have so much bias in my thinking, and I'm not going to become a better thinker. And I think in the same way to, you know, in a year from, from starting Morning Brew, we could have looked back and said, oh, you wanted this, I wanted that. I think that's a really great way to solve co-founder relationships. So it was really organic. I wish we did that. I would recommend everyone to go do that activity, spend the time. It is so valuable. Uh, I recommend it to everyone. It's really, really good. I just don't know how these companies operate with like five co-founders. Like I, I met a guy the other <laughs> night, um, super successful company. Um, he's built like the, one of the biggest software companies in payments for cannabis. And it's unbelievable. But he's like, yeah, I had five co-founders. One of them left, so I have four. And I just, I don't know. I couldn't imagine like that many cooks in the kitchen. You know what I mean? Like, to totally. can you really have that diverse of skill sets to work in harmony with four co-founders? So let me, let me give you the flip side, right? The flip side to that is there can be four, five, six co-founders, but there has to be one decision maker. It has to be very clear who the CEO is. If that's not clear, and when I meet companies to invest, it's so obvious when I speak to two people and, and the way they're talking, they both think they're the decision maker. That never works, mm. right? Co-CEOs, I don't believe it in, in, in it at all. I know there's- I think it's pretty stupid. Yeah. yeah. There ultimately, ha there has to be mutual respect, but one decision maker. If you get there, then Michael, I think actually a lot of co-founders is interesting because in the early days of a business, it is so hard. It is so painful. And I think that co-founder title gives a level of ownership a level of accountability that other people don't have. And then through the course of the business, to have those co-founders be running different teams, be a part of different teams is so valuable. They don't have to be equal co-founders, right? It doesn't have to be a 25% equity split. Right. Maybe one co-founder is the founding CTO and they have 3% versus maybe your first engineer would have a point or yeah. half a point. Yeah. But just having right. so many people, I think you know a, a lot of these companies, I think, actually have three, four, five, six co-founders. Uh, DoorDash, I think, everyone knows of the CEO. Uh, I think his name's Tony. But there are, I think, two, three, four there. So there's a lot of examples where you don't even know the third and fourth co-founder because they didn't become the, the most vocal person. Uh, they're quite wealthy. And maybe you could argue they actually have a better life than the person who is now worth 30 billion versus 2 billion, still running the company. But I think lots of co-founders, if you can make it work, is amazing. I think when you're young and you're building a business, one of the things that you try to lean on is advice from other people, right? And that's actually one of the hardest things is who do you listen to and what do you listen and, and take and actually incorporate? How do you think about that and how would you advise other young people to, to sort of, you know, incorporate that within their own business? Yeah, so I think the big mistake people make is... They, let's take Morning Brew. They start Morning Brew, and we have we, it was all the early days of Morning Brew. We had no employees; it was just us. And we picked an advisor who was the CEO of a multi-billion-dollar company. I think that's a huge mistake because that person has not experienced what we're experiencing. Yeah. First off, ever they were never the founder of a company, but they run a ten thousand-person organization. And so, how can they resonate? How can their advice actually be helpful when? You're running a two-person company. They're running a 10,000-person company, a $100 billion company, or whatever it may be. And so my recommendation is to find three people who you can triangulate the advice they give. One is a peer, right? So another founder in a similar stage that you can say, hey, I'm having these problems. Are you having these problems too? It's more of a peer where you can be problem-solving together. You're at the same stage. The second is someone a stage or two ahead of you. So if you are a seed stage founder, find someone who's a series A or series B. They can help you see around the, the wall. They can help you see the mistakes you're about to make. And the third is go find that person who is the, the CEO or the founder of a huge company, and they can help you on maybe more strategic, higher level things. And then you can triangulate the, the feedback and the advice you get of all three of those people. 
But I think only having one of those people can actually be more harm than good or can do more yeah. harm than good because you're getting feedback from someone who either hasn't seen it or hasn't seen what's further down the road or hasn't seen it in 15 years. So I think one mentor, one founder can be really dangerous. I love that. Interesting. Me and Simi, when we were building our future, we were getting pulled in so many directions because <laughs> we talked to people who would give us advice based on what would benefit them the most, right? So if we were thinking about raising money, right, and we were on the fence about it, the person who was in a position to write an angel check or bring in more investors through an SPV or through their connections was much more likely to say, you guys are going to be the next Zuckerberg's like, fuck it, you know, all this small boy shit you have to go raise. And it was just like you get stretched in so many directions, especially as like a young founder with something somewhat promising. I feel like you really you really kind of get hawked on uh, by by other people. Um, and we, we never had like more, I feel like, than one or two advisors. So I don't know. I think that's good in that maybe just cherry pick like a team of Avengers where it's like someone who's close to your age. Someone who's like five, like someone like you, well, I mean, you'd probably qualify as both the older person and the middle ground person, but like someone five years older and then someone like 15, 30 years older who's seen it all, you know, totally as like your team. And on top of that, also having functional advisors, right? So having generalists can only help you so much. If they're a CEO, they can only help you so much. But if you're building a media company and you've never done that before, you're going to need to build a sales team. If you've never built a sales team, having a CRO advisor could be really helpful who's done it before. And I think I, whether I was cocky or just didn't have the time, I was very anti-advisor, anti-networking. I was like, why would I spend these 45 minutes with this person versus putting those 45 minutes into making Morning Brew better? I, I never really understood that in the beginning. Uh, and yeah. I would tell people, you know, mentors are bullshit. Advisors are bullshit. I don't think that anymore. I think that advisors can be helpful, but you just have to be really careful, right? Yeah. I, I think we would have done, we would have built the team so much more efficiently in the early days if I had an HR advisor, a CRO advisor. Uh, so I think advisors and mentors are helpful. But to your point, you have to be really careful about what they actually want, right? If they're just trying to get extra equity in your company or trying to get you to raise, you have to just really identify that stuff because that can make you go in a really bad direction. I mean, the number of people who Alex and I spoke to who were like, go raise $10 million and go put video on Facebook. A lot of really successful people hmm. who you would know, like you would know their name, like, oh, wow, that's a, that's a, you know, sold their media company for $100 million plus. Uh, they told us in 2017, why don't you just go raise $10 million and make videos on Facebook? I was like, that sounds horrible. What about, what about TikTok, Austin? Does TikTok count? Well, TikTok wasn't around when we were when we were in college. We're a little bit, we're True. a little older. At this that was point. like the hot thing at the time. That was like the cheddar playbook, right? Um, was there any one person that influenced you the most? Like one mentor that you looked to? Like did like did you ever like bump into Bloomberg or something and he gave you like five minutes of advice and it changed your life or something like that? So I feel like I need to make up a story because this is a question I get a lot <laughs> and I don't have a good answer. I need to make something up and just you know have a really yeah. beautiful that you can clip up. But here's what I will say. Uh, I, I did meet with a bunch of people. Some of the people you mentioned I, I did meet with and some other really successful people. But my big takeaway was – I was like, holy shit, these people aren't better than me. Yeah. Like, they're not better than me. I can do that. Like, I, I used to idolize these media execs. And then I'd meet them and I'd have dinner with them, have lunch with them. I'd be like, I can be you. And that was so empowering because I was like, <laughs> I'm, I'm idolizing you and I think I'm better than you. And I'm 22 and you're 40. I'm going to totally pass where you are. <laughs> I think you're an idiot in some regards. Some of these people, I was like, I think you are an idiot. There are some, some media companies that are struggling mightily now. And in hindsight, it's so obvious. But I had lunch with some of these people, and they pitched me on their strategies. Public, media companies, CEOs, big, worth billions of dollars or hundreds of million dollars. And they pitched me their strategy. And I'd be like, what you're saying makes no sense. You're just saying big words, but that doesn't make any sense. And they'd be like, well, you're just doing a newsletter. I'm like, all right, well, we'll see how this works out. Yeah. I, yeah. I just I, – so, so it was empowering to meet these people and, and just not think that highly of them. But you had conviction in what you were doing, and I think that's something I've recently learned, which is, you know, you almost have to guard your idea because, you know, you should talk to other people and tell them what you're working on, but – 
if you go to an advisor or other people seeking counsel, they'll find ways to stretch your idea. Right. And so, you know, they'll try to push you in one direction. Someone else will push you in another direction. And now your idea is morphed. And that's not always a good thing. Um, and so I've now come to realize, like, even if you don't know maybe the next few steps, right, just focus on like the little wins you can get. Keep building that momentum and, you know, stay true to the playbook that you're trying to run. Right. Don't let any one person influence you too much to the point where it's actually consequential to you and your business. I mean, the, the, the most fragile thing in all of business is a startup idea. Yeah. Right, because how many times could you have poked a hole in Airbnb's business model or Morning Brew's business model? I'm not comparing the two, but it's so easy in the early days to, to just poke a hole and say that is is such a dumb idea, sleeping on people's couches. <laughs> At the same time, you also need to get real feedback. Like you need to listen to people when they're like, "Dude, you're an idiot. What are you doing? This is a bad idea." I think the way to navigate that is just to say, "Hey, look." I'm going to go all in on this thing, and I'm not going to second guess it for 90 days or 180 days. I'm going to put that in my calendar, and from now till then, not going to think about it one time. I'm going heads down, going to bust my ass, and going to go do this thing. And then in, on that set date, then I'll come back. I'll revisit. I'll decide, did I? Am I an idiot or am I a genius? Yeah. Uh, but, but you can't wake up every morning and second guess your idea or listen to all the noise of other people. It'll, it'll never work. You'll just live in doubt. There must have been one or two yeah. shiny objects that may have caught your attention early on, though. I mean, Michael and I fell in that trap, I would say, for sure. I remember there was one point Mike calls me early in the morning. I was probably still in Indianapolis, and he's like, we need to become a Web3 media company. <laughs> I was like, listen, I don't think that's a good idea. He's like, no, I just had this conversation. We need to be a web company. <laughs> Did you have something Simi, like that? Simi the skeptic. Simi I was the skeptic. a skeptic. Your, your skeptical nature saved us a few times. Yeah, Michael, you are incredibly lucky that you had Simi tell you. That that was <laughs> I, know. <horrible> idea. <laughs> I know. So... We did, right? That the people telling us we should raise $10 million to create video on Facebook was definitely a, a shiny object. And, and even more recently, when we became successful, now, now shiny objects come up every single day. But in the early days, the reason I didn't get phased by these shiny objects is I just had a very simple Excel sheet, and I'd look at it every day. And people would call this idea stupid. My friends in college were like, you're turning down a job in investment banking where you can make you know, 200, 300, 400 grand in your first couple of years. You're so dumb. Like, what are you doing? This makes no sense. And I'd be like, yeah, like that could be true. But I just look at this spreadsheet and I just see if the subscriber numbers go up like that and our costs stay flat and our revenue goes up, that profit number keeps on going up. And that number gets pretty big very quickly. And I'm just going to follow that thing. Like, I'm just going to look at this model every day. And people would just push back. I don't get it. Newsletters, do this thing, video, events, all this stuff in the early days. And, and I think that's what we did right, is we said, no, write, grow, sell, build the best newsletter, get to a million subscribers. At that point, we can get attracted by the, the shiny object. But that heads down focus, I think, was the big, really the, the number one thing that differentiated us from a bunch of other newsletter companies that you obviously know of quite well is we didn't raise money and we didn't get distracted. We stayed really, really focused. And it was boring. There were days where it was boring, but we knew the subscriber numbers didn't go up. The CPMs are going to stay the same. That profit number gets very attractive to a million subscribers. Just, just get there. Don't get distracted. That's great. That's crazy. Uh, speaking of shiny objects, I mean, now that you're a public intellectual, a <laughs> Twitter aficionado, you know, you probably you get approached by a lot of people with, you know, try to get your money. Right? It's just, it's just what happens. It's like the minute we sold our future, I remember like my LinkedIn DMs blew up with like some dude from like. JP Morgan, private wealth, or some dude from high school. I was like, anyways, you get you get a lot of attention, right? So how do you choose opportunities? I feel like it must be really hard because there's a lot that come your way. And particularly when you're someone like yourself who's kind of like an influencer, a lot of people want to do like joint ventures and stuff. I know you own like a, a staffing agency for virtual assistants is one example. Um, but yeah, just walk us through how you might consider getting involved in a new opportunity? Yeah, look, my, my demeanor, just like we were super focused in Morning Brew, I, I just love being focused on a few things and doing them incredibly well. There are other people, take, I don't know, like Andrew Wilkinson, who is capable of overseeing 300 companies and he is so good at delegating. That's just not me. I like having more skin in the game and fewer things. And so 
that's where I focus my time. So morning brew, obviously the number one thing I do. Number two, oceans. Because you said it, I will plug it. Uh, we uh, help US-based companies hire talent from Sri Lanka. The big differentiator is Sri Lanka is this amazing country. It's a country where people go to college uh, internationally, so they send people to these international schools where they become very familiar with and used to working with uh, English-speaking uh, people who go in the business world. They go back to Sri Lanka, and there are multinational corporations there. There's JP Morgan, there's, I think, Deloitte, and these people, the cost of living is so much less than America that you're able to go and hire these people for, you know, a half the price that you'd hire someone in the U.S., but because these people went to U.S.-based schools or international schools, they're so integrated into the American workforce that they're so good at their jobs. It's amazing. So that's the second thing I do. I'm a co-owner there. Uh, I also run a fund, right? That's the third thing. Beyond that, I do like nothing else. I try to really stay focused and put more eggs in those baskets. I mean, it's the, it's the Warren Buff, Buffett philosophy. You know, diversification is for losers. Concentration is important. I'm heavily concentrated in Morning Brew, my fund in Oceans, and that's really it. How do you think about competition? Because all three of those things that you mentioned have become very, very competitive, right? The good thing about Morning Brew is you guys are the biggest player, right? So effectively, no one can just, just hop into the newsletter game and try to beat you guys out. It's very, very hard to do with some of the things that you discussed. But like even with the VA staffing agency, right? Now it feels like there's four or five big players in the space. They're all kind of encroaching on everyone's territory. Funds we know are very, very competitive. You're competing for a great deal flow against some of the big names. How do you think about that? So each one is different, but I yeah. think the factors you have to think about is one, entry price, right? So my entry price at Morning Brew was pretty good. It was zero, right? So I spent nothing for those shares, and I think the company is, is going to do quite well or has done quite well, and so that return is pretty good. But when buying into a company like Oceans or buying into a VC fund or, or, or buying into companies through my VC fund, getting into these companies, you're right, uh, staffing is competitive. But I believe I bought into the company at the right price that will have a really solid outcome for me. So that's the first thing. And two is the best, right? I think Morning Brew is the best newsletter business publisher out there. So that's why I'm so excited to, to run it and to spend time here because I think uh, there's a power law, right? All the, the returns go to the very best companies. So that's Morning Brew. Oceans as well. There's a lot of companies out there who are sourcing from other countries, other places. And I think the, the caliber of, of talent in Sri Lanka is really, really powerful. And it's a really tough country just to go and start a business in. You really have to have boots on the ground like we do. So, and, and VC, I think I have differentiated access because of the brand I've built. So I think I've, there's a real reason why I'm involved in all three of these. I think they're all uh, going to win. And also I'm not buying into oceans. I'm not buying into Morning Brew at a, a billion dollar valuation. And so entry price and just quality of business get me really excited. Yeah. Have you learned a lot about venture investing, like owning a fund? Like say, you know, in the future, me and Simi, you know, start our next company, you know, what are you looking for in the idea? Do you have like a framework now that you pull off the top of your head? Is it like, you know, market, team, whatever? Um, or is there something like a little bit more abstract or make a, a template that you use? Yeah, I mean, if you guys are raising money for a company, I'm already out, so you don't have to even even come to me. <laughs> uh, no, I'm just 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 messing. But uh, you know. <laughs> but it's all uh, it's all done for. We have no we have no route. You guys get money for me one time and one time only. <laughs> uh, no, uh, so. It depends what stage you're investing in. We're investing early stages. And to me, the most important thing is team, right? The founders are really important or the founder, which goes back to what we we're saying before. That's why I don't mind if you have four or five co-founders, as long as the dynamic's good, because I have more people I can, I can vet, more people I can make sure they're really good at running the company. You have to hire a few, fewer people with less risk. So team is by far the most important thing. Then... Uh, it, it depends what stage. If you're investing in pre-seed, you're just investing in the founder. The idea might pivot 16 times, but you need to bet on the person. If it's seed, you're betting, at least to me, on the team, but also the market. You have to think that where they're going into is an interesting market. And the third thing I always want to think about is, I think the mistake a lot of people make is they invest in things that have a high likelihood of being a double, as opposed to a less likely opportunity to be a home run, meaning in venture, you, you can't hit a bunch of three, four, five Xs. It doesn't, the math doesn't work on a fund. So if I invest something at 25, and I think it's going to totally be worth $100 million, 
that's not that interesting. It's a 4X, and if they, they raise more money and, and dilute my shares because they issue stock, okay, I double my money. For, from a, a venture investor, your money's illiquid. That's not that good. Uh, so the outcome potential has to be minimum 10X, hopefully 30, 40, 50, 100X. The biggest outcomes you can never predict, obviously. No one thought Airbnb was going to be a $100 billion company. But looking back, if you could convince people to sleep on each other's couches and build this network, that thing could be big. Now, that's a, maybe a bad example because it's so out there. But you know, for that, that's why I don't invest in, uh, for, out of my fund in media because media outcomes are great for the founders. They're not great for venture investors. You're not going to 10x your money in totally. media, almost, almost never. Mm-hmm. You're talking about betting on the team, which comes on, which comes down to betting on the jockey, right? The people actually running it. So, tell me about the people who cut through the noise. You're getting a shit ton of inbound, and people are saying, "Hey, Austin, come be evol- involved in our company, or come invest, or whatever that looks like." What are some characteristics, or maybe even examples that you can pull from, where it was like, "Wow, this person is unique. They got my attention, and they're worth betting on." So, so normally it, it comes through a warm intro, right? Normally I, uh, it's much, much easier to, to, to respond to a warm intro. So that's your filter. It's like if they can't get in touch with someone that I deeply respect, I probably won't even consider this opportunity. So not, not exclusively, but that is the first filter. If you come in through someone I respect who's invested already, that's a great sign. If not, uh, send me a, a demo of the product. Show me why you're, you're able to succeed. I really love founder market fit. Yeah. So I really love when I don't love when founder X goes and he's like, oh, I spent six months and I I looked into some industry and I found this opportunity to be a hundred billion dollar opportunity. I like it more when someone says, hey, I built an agency in e-commerce and and what I found actually is that the agency business is great. But there's this opportunity we kept on this, this problem we kept on stumbling upon over and over again. And. We figured out that we couldn't, through an agency, help our partners, but actually we could build a SaaS company, that this SaaS could help our partners solve this retention problem, solve, solve this upsell problem, because they, they so intimately know the customer base and, and the, the problem. And there's a real reason why that founder is going into that market. And in venture, I think that's really important. Founders really, I think, have to have, a, they don't have to have been in that industry, but they have to have a real reason for why they're encountering that problem. It's just mm. so hard to build a billion dollar company that if your reason for, for starting a, a mattress company is I like sleeping, like, you know, that, that's, that's, that's not great. But if you really have a reason why you understand this problem or you've identified a problem that's unique, uh, that that's really interesting. And so demos, you know, founder market fit intros, those, those are the, the top three. Yeah. Well, I think we're getting towards the end. I just want to ask you about kind of a macro level motion with open AI. So, Axel Springer signed a licensing agreement with OpenAI uh, for the chatbot to essentially take Morning Brew's content, take Insider's content, t- take Springer's content, take maybe take our futures content. Um, you know, what do you think about that? Right? Like, do you think that like licensing to chatbots could be like a nice revenue stream for media companies going forward? Um, also, the New York Times doesn't seem to be happy with any numbers, so they're taking them to court. So. I would love your kind of take on this entire situation. Yeah, so just just to clear one thing up. So Morning Brew was not involved in that deal. That's more of a Axel Springer thing. Okay. But but anyway, the look, I, I think the publishers are quite scared because face they, they, they built they, they they bet the farm on Facebook, on Snapchat, on on Instagram, on on Twitter, and these companies, these social platforms promised the world. And they gave them nothing. They said, hey, we'll fund your shows on Facebook Live. And then Facebook pivoted. Next thing you know, those teams have to be laid off and it goes to zero. And so I think, and not speaking for Axel Springer, but publishers in general, my guess is some money is better than nothing. And I think uh, this is especially bad for publishers because at least Google, for example, uh, they are driving traffic to your site. Right, so they're they're bringing you traffic. So without Google, you might have no, most publishers a lot most of their traffic's on Google. So yes, publishers get really frustrated with Google. They may change it, sure, but at the end of the day, your business probably doesn't exist if not for Google. OpenAI though, they're driving no value to you. Right, if they're taking your content and just in open betting in, in, in chat yeah. GPT. There's no reason for people to go to your site, and so I think the publishers are going to have to take one of two stances. Either we're a partner and you need to pay us and we need to lock in long-term deals so we can sustain ourselves. That's option one. Or option two, you can't scrape our content. 
getting in, in the middle, hey, we'll do a one-year deal, that's really mm. risky because that's the same type of environment they were in with Facebook. They were in with Google. These, you know, these platforms pay publishers for a year or two, then stop paying them. And I think it's either a long-term framework, and, and I think hopefully uh, legislation gets involved in some way, uh, or it's nothing. But you, I think you have to be very careful about getting caught in the middle, because that's where ultimately the, pal the, the publisher uh, has no power, and the platform just exerts all their power, and will just relive the last 10 years of what we've seen. Yeah. This emergence of tech within media, what catches your eye? Is you know me, Morning Brew potentially coming out with a software offering? Is that something that even sounds interesting to you? I think in the history of media, there have probably been almost zero t uh, media companies that have started successful tech uh, uh, products. Not none, but close to zero. Uh, and it's because it's so hard. It's just really, really hard to be a media company and pivot. Uh, and so I think if it's not in your DNA, if you weren't founded with the idea, hey, we are going to build a data product, a SaaS product, it's really hard to add that on. So for Morning Brew, odds are unlikely, right? Be like we, Beehive was from a, a created by a former Morning Brew employee. We could have started Beehive at Morning Brew, but to invest three, four, five, six million dollars off our balance sheet is just unrealistic. It's a different business. So really, really hard for media companies to start uh, uh, SaaS businesses. But I think what does work nicely is when SaaS businesses at times can buy. So like The Hustle, for example, I think that's been really good for HubSpot. I think it works really well. Same with My First Million. So I think partnerships work. I think small M&A works. Media companies building SaaS. Uh, very, very yeah. poor track record yeah. there. So what's top of mind well, for you, man? Like, you know, you're young. You've done well with from a career standpoint. Like, what's exciting to you? What motivates you? I just love winning. I just love winning. And I think that I've what I've learned, not just about me, about so many people, is people get caught up in a mission, a vision, all that stuff. I think all that's important. And there are businesses where the vision's amazing. That's really yeah. cool. But I think most businesses, it, the, the whole mission-driven uh, business economy we were in you know, 10, 15 years ago, it's like, no, 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 you're not changing the world. You're selling suitcases. Right? You're not changing the world, you're selling a mattress. And that's okay. It's okay to be really excited about employing people, making them better, making yourself better, making everyone money, giving people a better opportunity for a job. Like, that's exciting. But I think this idea, that like, oh, like this amazing vision, I haven't found it yet. There are some out there, longevity, uh, space. I think those are really cool. I could get excited. But hmm. I just like winning, I like building successful businesses. Uh, and I like just working with amazing people around me, and hopefully everyone succeeds and makes money. So just, just continue to keep on winning. I love that. That's the issue with consumer brands, man. It's like there is no thesis yeah. with soap. Like there's no – I don't care how you spin it. This is not motivating <laughs> or fun in any it's, way you look at it. It's just soap. It's just soap, which is okay. Yeah. It's amazing. If you found a better bar of soap, you found it, you made a better yeah. deodorant, that's awesome. But don't try to say you're, you're, you know, you're, you're changing humankind forever because you're selling soap that's $18 a bar. <laughs> because it's better for you. Like, that's, that's fine. Great. Good for you. Native deodorant's awesome. I think that's actually one thing that Moyes did well is he didn't try to change the world. He tried to sell more deodorant. Like, that's awesome. Go for do sure. that. Mike, you want to wrap oh, us yeah. up? Well, thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of Our Future Podcast today with the boss, man. Thank you, Austin, so much for your time. And everybody, make sure to hit that subscribe button on YouTube. Also, make sure to be subscribed on the RSS feed, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get that stuff in your ears. But with that, everybody, what we say, Austin, is stay frosty, baby. Stay frosty. Stay frosty. Stay frosty. <laughs> Peace.